The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Chantel Jennings, national college football writer from The Athletic. Chantel is based in Pac-12 country and will be at this week's big game between Stanford and Oregon. We'll set the stage for that. It's a big one for the Ducks, especially quarterback Justin Herbert if he wants to make a run at the Heisman and insert Oregon back into the playoff conversation. We'll also talk about USC's troubles, and we'll look at beyond the West Coast and see what's up with these first-year coaches having terrible starts, which ones might be in a little more trouble than others. Also, Chantel did a great story about Michigan and Nebraska, the game that was never played. We'll talk to her a little bit about that hearkening back to the 1997 season when the Cornhuskers and the Wolverines shared the national title. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can now find us on Podcast One. Listenership has really taken off since we moved to that platform, so we thank them for having us. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe at either place, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It will help us find listeners. And it will help listeners who really love college football find us. As usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. My guest today on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, I'm pretty, pretty sure this is the first time for Chantel Jennings from The Athletic. She is a national college football writer. She is uh, tucked into the northwest part of the country. But she covers the entire country. But she's particularly keen on that area. And with a big game coming up this week in Eugene between Stanford and Oregon, I figured Chantel would be a great person to have on. So thanks for joining the show. And I'm right. You have never done this with me before, right? No, I haven't. This is very exciting. All right. So sorry about that. Clearly, I've been uh, spending way too much time with your colleagues like Max Olson and Nicole Arbach, and I've totally been neglecting you. No, no. This is wonderful. I'm excited to be here, Ralph. Excellent. You know, let's start with where you're going to be on Saturday. And that is sort of the highlight game of the weekend is Stanford, which I believe is now number seven. And I believe Oregon is number 20. I should probably know that because, you know, we do the poll. Oregon's basically spent like the last three weeks just beating up on teams that, you know, hardly even count. San Jose State's and Bowling Green's and FCS. So we really don't know what Oregon is, but we think Oregon might be pretty good. We'll find out. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at any of Oregon's games because they've been playing such terrible competition, but do we have any sense of what Oregon might be, or is it are they a completely unknown coming into this? I definitely say the latter at this point because I have watched some of their games. As you said, they're not you can't really glean a lot from a team when they play such a crappy non-conference schedule. And so I have tuned in for a bit of Bowling Green and Portland State and San Jose State. But what you can really tell from those games, you know, is kind of few and far between. There are obviously worrisome moments. They only beat San Jose State by 13. San Jose State lost to UC Davis earlier this year. Um, there's a lot of that sort of comparative model, I think, across the country this year where it's hard to figure out if anyone is good at football or if everyone is good <laughs> at football or if everyone is bad at football. 
Um, you just kind of keep looking at the stuff where it's like, well, BYU, you know, has these two great wins, but then they lost to Cal, but maybe Cal is good. But so it's, it's hard to know who anyone is, but I think this game with Oregon and Stanford will get a lot of, a lot of clarification about the personality of both of these teams. Yeah, we are at that point of the season where everything has to be met with, that was a great win, maybe, right? Uh, that was a terrible loss, mm-hmm. maybe. Right. The one thing I, I think that's for sure that will happen this weekend is Justin Herbert is a guy, he's a quarterback for Oregon, who is really talented. When he was playing for Oregon last year, when he was healthy, Oregon was pretty good. And when he wasn't, they were really mm-hmm. terrible. And I think he comes into this year with some NFL hype as well, like he could be maybe the first quarterback taken, so he's got that pedigree as well. But again, he hasn't had a big stage, and if he's going to be in the Heisman conversation, he doesn't have a ton of opportunities because he, he just missed, he had three games which nobody was really watching. He's going to have to take mm-hmm. advantage of these sort of big stage opportunities. First of all, give us a little idea of who Herbert is because he's an interesting guy in that he's sort of a hometowner, and how big of a deal is this game for him if he really is going to become sort of a, a national star? Yeah, Justin Herbert's kind of an interesting guy. Like you were saying, he is this hometown star. He was so under the radar. I remember when Mark Helfrich signed him, it was sort of this like last minute tucked into the signing day press conference where everyone's like, oh, that's cute. They signed a hometown kid. That's nice of them. Um, And then more and more that you got to learn about him, it was like, oh, this kid is actually pretty good. And then obviously he goes on to start. Um, But I think for me with him, there is some quantitative evidence about who he is in terms of his statistics. But for me, the biggest thing this season has been the qualitative evidence. I, I remember dealing with him as a freshman and he was just, I don't want to say painfully shy, but he was definitely a freshman boy in the situation that was larger than life in college football. And he's thrown onto this stage and he seemed overwhelmed, frankly, a lot of the time, just in conversations, kind of a hard time making eye contact all the time, just not a lot of confidence. And this past year at Pac-12 Media Days when he was there, I saw a completely different person. And I think that also translates onto the playing field. I know that Willie Taggart was trying to get him to be more vocal with his teammates. And I think Mario Cristobal and Marcus Arroyo have continued that this year. But, you know, there was a time when I walked up to him at Pac-12 Media Days and I said, Justin, you know, I'd love to grab you later for an interview. And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And later he came up to me. He approached me and said, I have some time right now if you'd like to chat. And I just thought, wow, this is such a different person. And that's a very small example. And maybe people outside of the reporting community are like, what does that even mean? But as a reporter, to have a player remember that and then approach you so that you don't have to go back to them because they have time, it just sort of reflected an awareness of the situation that I was impressed with. And so... I think he's grown a lot as a person in the last few years. I'm curious to see how he does against the Stanford defense this weekend. People that I've talked to um, in terms of NFL scouts, they're still really, really high on him, and they aren't really too worried about the fact that they only have a 13-point win over San Jose State. What were the reasons that he flew so under the radar? Was he in an offense that didn't display his talents? Was he just maybe a, a super raw kid? I mean, looking back... And talking to people like, why was he just, oh, the hometown kid, that's really cool, and he'll you know serve as a backup for a few years, and isn't that nice for him? Why did he become the, oh, that's a nice way to, to fill out your class, to, oh my gosh, this guy could be the first quarterback taken in the draft? Well, he didn't do a ton of 
summer football. He was a really good baseball player. And so he, I'm pretty sure he was a three-sport athlete. I think it was baseball, basketball, and football at uh, Sheldon High School. So he wasn't this kid that flew all over the country and was constantly in SEC country going to these camps and, you know, down in L.A. doing the seven-on-seven stuff and showing up at the uh, different Elite 11 type things to, you know, get his name out there. He he was not like that. His family is not like that. He's one of three boys. Uh, all of the boys play a ton of sports. They're very involved as a family with everything the kids do. And so he wasn't, you know, I think in this recent age of recruiting, it's about the amount of ink you get in a way. You know, all of these kids that we know about are because they're at all of these camps. And so a guy can be really good and fly under the radar. And I don't know exactly how many stars he had, and I don't put a ton of stock into that. Um, But, you know, Oregon didn't even really know who he was at first. He showed up to his first, um, I don't know if it was a practice. I think it was a practice that he came out to. And his sticker, his name tag that you have to wear as a recruit when you're going there, it said Justin Hebert. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't even have his name spelled correctly. And so he actually took that from the coaching staff. Like, they don't even care enough about me to know my name. Like, ah, this doesn't matter. Maybe I'll just play baseball. And he was a very talented baseball player. Ultimately, Mark Helfrich and Scott Frost and the offensive staff were like, no, this kid actually has, has some talent. He has a frame that they can build out. You know, he can get bigger. He's going to get taller. He comes from... You know, his family has a bunch of tall men in it. So, yeah, ultimately they didn't whiff on it, which is pretty good um, because it's it's proved to be a pretty good decision for Oregon. Yeah, it's amazing the recruiting circuit. I actually did a story before this season about a, a defensive end at Boston College named Zach Allen, and he was – uh, you know, a three-star recruit, and he was a big deal in Connecticut. But, you know, it's Connecticut. That's not a, necessarily like a, a hotbed of recruiting. But one of the things his parents mentioned to me was something that you just said. And he stopped playing multiple sports, or at least he stopped playing basketball. Or maybe he stopped playing mm-hmm. At one point, he gave up one of his sports. But one of the things that he said to me, which reminded me when you just talked about Herbert, is that he was not a big camp guy. His parents were not like they were not on the camp circuit. They went to some camps, but they mm-hmm. were not on the circuit. And it is interesting in the recruiting realm, you sort of have to be on the circuit to a certain degree to really get noticed. Now, you could be a, you know just a total wonderkin and I guess get noticed that way. But if you're not on the circuit, that's sort of how you fall through the cracks. And it sounds like Justin Herbert but was one of those guys who just sort of fell through the cracks because he didn't expose himself to the circuit. Yeah, and that's I think you're completely right. That that circuit is sort of how the recruiting scene breathes right now. That is that is where everyone gets seen and, and where you go to be seen. And there are a lot of players who've made names for themselves there and have gotten scholarships because of it. But certainly Herbert's a good example that you know, that's not the only way to get a scholarship. It's a great way. It's, it's the most common way, um, but it's not the only way. Do you have a feel for who's going to win this game? Because, you know, this is, it could really set the tone for the North. If nothing else, like even if Oregon were to lose, because Stanford obviously is number seven, so I think we always tend to put the pressure on the on the highly ranked team, and Stanford's got a little bit of a better non-conference schedule. They're sort of the better playoff candidate. But I do think, like, if Oregon shows up big here, it, it makes for an interesting North race. And maybe they're a team that can run the table in the Pac-12. And, and Washington, I think we know, is pretty good. 
And because when we'll get to the South in a second, because the South looks like such a tire fire in the Pac-12, it sort of it seems incumbent on the North to have more than just Washington and Stanford. So do you have a feel on where this game is heading? I really don't because it's such a tough question. Like I was saying earlier, there's you see the results of these games and it's hard to to watch them and think, okay, I know who this team is, maybe. I always think back, there was a few years ago, I've used this example a ton, but there was a series of AT&T commercials for March Madness where an adult asked, like, first graders questions about brackets. They said, you know, what do you think about Wichita State? What do you think about, you know, whatever? And for the one kid that they said, well, what do you think about Duke? And the little kid goes, well, they could be really good. And the guy's like, okay, okay, and goes, or they could be really bad. (laughs) Right. And that's kind of how I feel about so many teams right now. Like you ask me that question, do I have, do I have a gut feel on who is going to win this game? I want to say that I think it's going to be pretty close. I think Oregon is better than a 13 point win over San Jose state. I, I think, but they could not, you know, like there's just so many questions in my head right now. This defense, I thought would be a little further ahead right now, but I also think that Justin Herbert is a really good quarterback and, you know, maybe we're sort of hearkening back to the days of Oregon where, you know, the defense can give up 60 points because the offense can score 61. Maybe that's the sort of team this will be. I'm not saying that literally necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I honestly don't. If you told me that you think Stanford's going to win by three touchdowns, I'd say I could see that. And if you told me you thought Oregon's going to, going to win by two touchdowns, I would say, okay, maybe, sure. Like, I can be swayed either way. I'm really curious to see how this game goes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it is one of the more fascinating games of the weekend. And, you know, on the Stanford side, they played a lot better defense than I think. I think that's the one Mm -hmm. notable thing about the first three weeks for both of these teams is that we sort of knew Stanford was going to be pretty good offensively. You know, Costello's going to block down quarterback and give them better play than they had for a lot of last year until he took over. You know, Love had the bad game against San Diego State, but clearly, you know, that worked out fine because San Diego State was trying to, was, was concentrating so much on Love that Costello and Arcega Whiteside went nuts. But Stanford's only given up, you know, like 20 points, and 10 of them was last week to UC Davis when they were probably playing with, the, with you know, half throttle. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, right. Stanford's defense seems to be the most notable thing out of all this that we've learned in the, in the per, first three weeks is that that might be pretty good. Yeah, I agree with you. I think their defense is much better, but I also think their offenses look better. K.J. Costello, their quarterback, wasn't able to play last spring. He was rehabbing from some hip surgery, and I spoke with the O.C. to be to Pritchard last week, and he said that not just the silver lining, but kind of the best thing in all of that was that he was forced to watch from you know the sideline, essentially, and just really get into the game plan and the nuances of what they want this offense to do. And actually, I spoke with Keith Hayward earlier this week, the safeties coach at Oregon, and he said that the biggest difference this year is that the wide receivers just seem so much more complete. The pass catchers, he said the Titans as well. So the pass catchers for Stanford seem so much more complete, and KJ Costello is finding them. And so maybe they're kind of that opposite team where their defense isn't going to give up that much, and their offense is good enough that it'll score slightly more than the defense gives up too. So it's a toss-up in that way. Who do you do you have a gut feeling about who's going to win this game? You know, eventually I'm going to have to pick it, and I might end up pick 
asking Oregon, you know, that but that becomes sort of a confirmation bias thing. Like, I kind of think uh-huh. Oregon's going to be good. I came into the season thinking, you know what, I think Oregon's set for a pretty good year. Um, I don't think they'll win the North, but I think that, like, good things are ahead for Oregon. I think that Herbert could be in the Heisman conversation. So that sort of leads me to think, like, just based on that, just based on my preseason impressions, lead me to today thinking that, yeah, I'll probably pick Oregon. Again, because I, I just maybe part of it is because I think it, it will make the Pac-12 more interesting. And the other part problem mm-hmm. is last year when these two teams played, I'm pretty sure it was at one of the points when Herbert was hurt and Stanford just blew him into the Stone Ages. It was like 47-7. But again, because Herbert wasn't there, I, there's not much to be gleaned from that. Yeah, I don't think you can really. The last two years, I mean, Stanford has just crushed them. It's something like a 100 to 34 over the last two years. And last year, Braxton Burmeister, who was a true freshman, I believe, last year was was playing. And so, yeah, there's not a lot you can glean from that. Do you? How much do you buy into home field advantage? Do you think because Oregon has had three kind of whack non-conference games that the fans and the students are just going to be so pumped up for a good matchup that it's going to, Austin is just going to be insane for them yeah i mean i I could buy that oregon you know it's it's one of the tougher places to play when it really gets rolling because it's not that big and it's sort of on top of you and it holds the it holds the the sound in pretty well and there is something to the extent of sort of that coming out party game Mm -hmm. basically what the fans have been watching this team pull the wings off flies for three weeks so you got to think that they are pumped they have a game day there so I feel like Oregon is sort of a simmering pot, right? At some, they've been sort of waiting for a big moment for the last couple of years, maybe. So you could see a situation where if they, things start off well, it just becomes like a really great atmosphere for Oregon. It could become one of those. Like, like Miami had one of those last year against Notre Dame, right? Mm-hmm. They hadn't had a big game in ages. And then Notre Dame comes in there, and it's a night game. And the crowd was apparently just, I I wasn't there for that one, but it was apparently just nuts. And they started off well and they got a turnover. And then it just became like ferocious, like a ferocious tempest. And you could see something Mm -hmm. like that maybe happening here in Austin. I mean, you've been to Austin a lot. You know, that that could be a, that's a pretty electric atmosphere when it gets rolling. Yeah, it's it's a stadium where I think if, if the first quarter goes really well for Oregon, I will be curious to see what the second quarter looks like for Stanford. Um, I think that will be really key to see how how the Cardinal kind of handle Oregon and its fans getting on a roll. If that happens, you know, maybe that doesn't happen at all. Maybe maybe they're good. Maybe they're <laughs> not good. <laughs> Let, let me leave the Pacific Northwest, but stay in the Pac-12, and we'll definitely cover some of the rest of the country. But, you know, you write the Best Coast stuff. Chantel covers the nat- the country for The Athletic, but she is, because she's in the West Coast, and the West Coast often gets overlooked, I think she tries to shine a little light on the Pac-12 and West Coast football. So let's travel down to USC for a second. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Clay Helton, job security, and things like that. How how volatile do you think that USC situation is? <laughs> your sigh, your sigh alone, may I could have just cut right there and probably just summed it up in that sigh because that I think that's kind of sums up USC. Yeah, it's just confusing. I think because I expected them to be quite good this year. Um, I am not 
someone who buys into the hype of true freshmen. Um, I think I tend to pump the brakes on everything, whether it's, you know, this coach needs to be fired. This freshman is going to be the greatest player who has ever stepped foot on the planet to all of those things. I am for whatever reason, more cautious and almost too much. Sometimes we'll pump the brakes. What I learned about JT Daniels, I wrote a feature about him this off season and kind of just the people I spoke to around him throughout the off season uh, coming into this fall. I bought his hype and I don't think he's, you know, I, there was just a lot of hype, but the team as a whole right now, it was just confusing some plays where you were sort of wondering why they were playing the way they were playing. And I think coming into this season, because I did think USC was going to be quite good in my head, I thought, well, they have a great to the Pac-12 title game because they don't have to go through Oregon or Washington to get to the Pac-12 title game. Mm-hmm. And now, three weeks in, I'm sitting here and I'm reading all of these people who are saying that Helton needs to be fired or at least, you know, his, his hot seat is getting quite hot. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, hearkening back to 2016 where they were four games in and they were one in three. They had lost to three ranked opponents. That was the difference. But then the rest of the season, they had opportunities to get big wins. I think they won nine straight that year, but they beat top five teams in Washington and Penn State. And this year, I wonder if the fact that they won't have those ranked teams on the schedule, because if you look at their schedule, even if they they win out, how does an administration view a team that's going to beat Oregon State and Cal? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you said, a South that right now, there's a decent chance that no one is actually good. How does an administration view that? I almost feel like, if they had the opportunity to play number 15 Oregon and the number seven Washington and beat those teams at some point in the season, that would sort of be the piece that would help uh, the argument in, in Clay Helton's case. But they don't have those games on the schedule this season. And so it's interesting to sort of, uh, this is kind of rambling, but I was just thinking about that this morning, how quickly sort of the scheduling changes and how you view that in the perspective where a few weeks ago I thought, oh, you know, it's quite good that they don't have Oregon and, and Washington because then, you know, they'll get to the Pac-12 title game and they'll have a chance to do this. And now I'm thinking, oh, man, I bet they wish they had Oregon and Washington on the schedule so that they could have those those marquee win potentials. Right. And the Pac-12 South is so sketchy. They've already lost to Stanford, but you know, I, it, it wouldn't be crazy to see the Pac-12 South champion lose maybe two or three games. So USC could still end up in the Pac-12 championship game, whether that's good or and which at least provides an opportunity for redemption. Real quickly before we get off of the Pac-12, is Colorado the best team in the, in the South? Is Utah? I mean, I thought Utah would win it and maybe win it with six and with a six and three record. So all those things are still possible. Uh, Everything is literally still possible in the Pac-12 South. UCLA could win the Pac-12 South, mm-hmm. but uh, do you have any? Can you shed any light on the Pac-12 South beyond like, boy, what a mess? <laughs> I think the Pac-12 South this year it is the season of. Every sentence could be phrased as a question. Like, literally, <laughs> you just said, you said, Colorado is good. Utah is okay. Uh, like, every every statement. I mean, for as much as we were sort of talking about, well, I don't know, Stanford and Oregon. 
they are more complete teams right now, I believe, than anyone we've seen in the South. I don't know. It's hard. The South is even more of sort of a cluster and, what did you say, a tire fire. Um, I think we expected it, we expected it to be a dogfight. I think the positive spin on that coming into the season, we thought, well, it's up for grabs. They have so many new coaches. You know, there, there are a lot of unknowns down there. And now it just sort of seems like the idea of dogfight, positive connotation has turned into, yeah, it's, it's a tire fire, um, which the South kind of historically has been. It always is like that in general. But I have even less of an idea about those teams. If I had to pick a team right now, <laughs> I really... I really like LaVisca Chenault and Steven Montez at Colorado. I think um, that's a great combo. Defensively, I'm, I'm not sure. Utah, maybe. I, you know, Utah's kind of the team that I was, I was thinking from the beginning. I wasn't buying into the Arizona hype. I, do, I don't really know if Herm Edwards' Arizona State team is ready for this. I don't know. Let's say Utah. Why not? I'll still pick them. You know, the thing you you mentioned about about uh, Colorado, though, you know, it, it becomes these sort of if in doubt, just pick the best quarterback. And, and I yeah. think he's the best. Now, you know, JT Daniels maybe eventually will become that, and, and maybe even Dorian Thompson Robinson at um, UCLA. UCLA. Those guys could eventually mm-hmm. become the best quarterback. But right now, Montez is the best quarterback. So maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe just being the best, having the best quarterback is the is the thing that gets Colorado through. All right, we are going to take a quick break. Well, I'm sorry, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more of Chantel Jennings from The Athletic. We'll take a little spin around the country and talk about some new coaches, including some of those in the Pac-12 South, right after this. And we're back with Chantel Jennings from The Athletic on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo. We talked a lot about the Pac-12 South some of the new coaches, well, at least one, uh, actually two, Chip, Chip, Chip Kelly and Kevin Sumlin, who are off to terrible starts, and they are not the only ones, are in the Pac-12 South. There's been a lot of attention paid to the uh, Chad Morrises and Willie Taggarts and Scott Frost and, and how none of these guys are winning games. Uh, Dan Mullen actually at least has a win, and so does Willie Taggart have a win against an FCS team. Of the crew that's been getting a lot of attention, these first-year coaches who come in with a lot of hype, which one do you think that the fan base should be most worried about long term it's only three games so you can make the argument that none of them should be that worried right because it's only three games but if you're looking at the one where you think you know if I was that fan base I might be thinking like this is the this portends bad things to come yeah I Florida State I think has has a good argument to be quite frustrated uh with with what has happened so far. That's another team where, as I said, I was watching USC and I'm thinking they should look more physical right now. Um, they've got a few guys on that offensive line that are probably going to be draftable. I, I kind of felt the same way about FSU, not necessarily in terms of the offensive line because that group is a little thinner, but I just the run game hasn't really picked up. I thought Francois would look more comfortable Again, it's, it's hard because the first-year coach, there's so much that goes into it, and some of these guys are going through scheme changes and a new playbook, and, and it's hard to judge it based off three games, right? There's just so many moving pieces and changing pieces. So I think FSU is, is one of those schools that I'm, I'm wondering 
how that's going to go through the season. But not to bring it back to the West Coast completely, but UCLA, mm-hmm. <laughs> like – they lost to Fresno State this weekend. And they were, like, yeah. doing calisthenics during the game, too. Yeah. That was weird. That, that was, was a weird thing, right? It was very bizarre. And UCLA is a place that I just thought maybe we would, again, see, see a more physical team. The knock on UCLA the last few years has been that they're as soft as their powder blue jerseys. Um, that is sort of, as I talked to coaches throughout the conference last year, I, you know, just to get ideas of, you know, what are the personalities of this team, UCLA and soft came up from time to time, probably more than any coach would want it here. And I just, how, how does this happen? Why, you know, I just thought, I don't know, we'd see a little bit more fire from a Chip Kelly team in the first three games and, I know that their quarterback situation is is not great right now, but I just thought there's a lot of first-year coaches that I think there's a lot of. I thought they were going to be this, and they just haven't been this. So it's hard to say, but I would say FSU and UCLA can be rightfully frustrated right now. Because you could also say, like, listen, there should just be some athletes here that could be workable, right? I mean, I think that's that's part of the thing with FSU especially. It's just like you say, well, wait, wait, okay, let, let's hold on a second here. I can identify, as you as you said, draftable players for UCLA. Like there are draftable players on that Florida State roster. Can we not do uh-huh. something with them? Can can you not get uh-huh. something out of these out of this like half dozen guys who are going to be in the NFL? Of course, if they're all playing the same position and other positions are completely collapsing, that sort of balances out and, and limits you. But, yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. the frustrating thing with some of those deals. Like, I think with, with Arkansas, you look at it and you're like, wow, there's just no players there. Like, they stink. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. But with some of these places where you see some players and you're like, boy, like, you couldn't do anything with that guy? Like, we, we, you know, we, we couldn't cobble together something with that player? I mean, you can close your eyes in Florida and California and just, like, throw a rock in any direction and hit a really good football player, right? <laughs> like, and these rosters are full of guys from California and Florida and the Southeast. And so, like you said, you just sort of think even if even if you don't have 11 guys necessarily on the exact same page, you think that you'll see more flashes than we've seen just because there are athletes there. There are solid good football players on these rosters. Um, and let me let me hit you with that. I can't remember when you were at Michigan. Chantel's a Michigan <laughs> alum. Were you you were there during the Rich Rod years, right? Yes, my first game was Appalachian State. Okay. So. Okay. So so you were the very end of very yeah. end of Lloyd, very beginning of mm-hmm. of Rich Rod. Um, so you're... I think it's the four worst years of Michigan football on record. Excellent. I've heard that. I don't know if that's true. It, it kind of felt that way. I'm not blaming you for that, but I did want to get your opinion on something. I have written this in the last couple of days and, and said this in a couple of areas that the problem with some of these bad starts is it goes bad quickly early. You make a terrible first impression. Mm-hmm. There sort of becomes this negativity around the program the coach loses certain support, maybe internally, maybe externally, and it just never, like, you just can never get it back on board. And I always got the impression that that's sort of what happened with Rich Rod at Michigan. Uh, my impressions of that, I mean, that's been written up, but, like, you were sort of there. You lived it. Are my impressions of that right? And, and I think that's, my again, my concern about some of these other places is it goes bad, it goes bad early, and instead of building the program, you're fighting the negativity. 
I think you're right about that. I've spoken with people who were on that staff, on Rich Rod's staff, that first group at Michigan, and people who are associated with the program. It was literally like when they got off the plane, there were a few people that went, oh, I don't think this was a great decision. Uh, I don't think they're going to like us. And so I think that idea of the first impression, whether it's just because of whatever it might be, uh, there definitely is that. And I think, you know, that was back in 2008, right? Yeah, 2008. Now the problem is, though, with the early signing day, we go back to these guys like Willie Taggart, like Kevin Sumlin, like Chip Kelly. Because of the early signing day, you almost have to make that first impression even better because it's all about recruiting. They want to bring more talent to these schools. And at this point, if you ask those coaches or the recruits, like, what is what is the personality of this team? What are they selling you other than the fact that, you know, look at my team right now, you can get on the field immediately. Like, what first impression are they not only making to the administration and the fans, but if you think about the recruits, the future of these programs, the guys who could win games in the future, and guys who would be signing in a few months from now, what is the first impression they're making to those guys? Right. And all of a sudden you find yourself with a bad season. How does it affect recruiting? And again, like you're behind, you're behind before you just started and now you're behind. My biggest concern of all the schools is that that could happen at Florida State because it just seems mm-hmm. like it was it's so bad there right now. Like that impre- that first impression is so bad. Now, Willie might be able to just recruit his way out of it and they'll be just fine. But I do worry about, like, the Rich Rod effect maybe clicking in at Florida State. Now, we talked a little bit about Michigan, and you had a story that posted actually just today, and we're, we're doing this on Tuesday afternoon, about, like, the great, one of the great games never played in college football history. And that is Michigan and Nebraska play this weekend, and they've played a, a few times since, they've, since Nebraska's entered the Big Ten. But they never played the game that everybody wanted to see, which was in 1997, 1997 <laughs> uh-huh. when Michigan and Nebraska split the national title back in a, at a time when that was a, a thing that could happen. And, and the teams never played. They, Michigan was number one for a lot of the season and, and ended up being number one in the AP poll. Charles Woodson won the Heisman Trophy as a sort of a going-away present to Tom Osborne. Nebraska, which had a very good team, beat Peyton Manning in Tennessee in the Fiesta Bowl, I think it was. And the coaches voted Nebraska number one. In their poll, Michigan was number one the other, but they never played. But that was unsatisfying to some folks way back when. And they tried to figure out who would win or what would happen if Michigan and Nebraska played. And you wrote about what happened in 1998. So give us the full story on that. So this is kind of one of those bizarre moments in your life as a reporter where you just sort of are in the right place at the right time and you talk to the right person. So I was in Charleston reporting a different story. And I'm sure as a reporter, you know, this. you go to lunch and dinner by yourself all the time. And normally I bring a book with me. Um, And so I went to lunch when I was in Charleston and I sit down at one of their communal tables because that's hip now. And uh, so I was sitting there and I happened to order a Bell's beer. A Bell is is a brewery in West Michigan. Um, I'm, as you said, from Michigan. And so whenever we don't get those beers out in the Pacific Northwest. So if I am somewhere where there's a Bell's beer, I try to order it. And the guy across from me goes, oh, you must be from Michigan if you are a fan of the Two-Hearted. And we start chatting, and I find out he's a pilot. We're talking a little bit. He finds out I'm a sports writer, and he goes, I have 
a mystery and maybe you can solve it for me. I was driving back from flight school in 1998 and I was driving through Lincoln, Nebraska, and I heard a national title game played on the radio. And I don't know if I hallucinated it. I think it was real, but it just couldn't be real. Right. But it sounded real. And so he's telling me all of these things and I'm sitting there, you know, in my seat sort of thinking like, I have met the most gullible man on the face of the planet. <laughs> he honestly believed that this happened. So I said, yeah, you know, give me your email address. I'll, I'll try to figure this out for you. And kind of ended up going down this rabbit hole and got the audio of the fake game that was played on a radio station. It was three guys in their early 30s. It was, you know, something they did soberly. Um, I assumed it was probably drunk college kids. I was wrong. And it sounds like a real game. I listened to it, and if you just listen to a single down or a single, you know, a quarter, you're listening to it and you're thinking, my God, how how are these men not – describing exactly what's happening in front of them and the audio, the fight songs are playing, there's cheers from the crowd. But yeah, so I, I kind of went down this rabbit hole, ended up writing the story because it was just too good not to tell. And, you know, it was a Lincoln radio station. So I think we all know how it probably ended, um, <laughs> but it was, it was fun because it, you know, Scott Frost was the quarterback of that team and he and I were chatting at lunch that day and, I said, oh, well, you know, Scott Frost is now the coach of that team. He said, yeah, I know, and it's funny because everyone, you know, everyone is saying that Scott Frost finally gets his chance to play Michigan, right? And I said, yeah, but I guess, you know, to you at least, he already did get that chance, didn't he? And he's like, yeah, it's crazy. So it was a fun story to report, sort of one of those spontaneous sort of moments where you just stumble onto a really good story. Well, that's posted at the Athletic today. If you're not a subscriber, I I don't need to promote. Well, I don't need to promote the Athletic any more than it does promote itself. But you should subscribe to the Athletic. <laughs> you should definitely subscribe to the Athletic if you're a college football pa- fan. I'll give my endorsement to everybody there, from Chantel to Stuart Mandel to the the rest of the crew. And you can definitely read uh, Chantel's story. So the last thing I always like to ask people before we're wrapping up the weekend, the the previewing uh, week four, I guess it will be now, is you know again we sort of like, especially when you're a national writer you sort of have to take a very big picture view of things and you're always looking for like things that are a little bit off the radar is there anything this is not the greatest slate of games this weekend but is there anything like a little off the radar maybe a game or a player that sort of has your attention this weekend because you want to see how they're going to do yeah you you had mentioned to me that you were going to ask me this question and i thought what a week to ask me this question please oh pete um i will since as you said, the slate of games this weekend is not that great. And as someone who is a proponent of best coast, West Coast, Washington State, Gardner Minshew the second is their quarterback right now. He's leading the nation in passing yards. It was about 400 uh, yards per game. They're playing USC. It'll be interesting to see. And it's a Friday how night. The Trojans respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Friday night game. Um, so some shorter weeks for some teams, but. Uh, I'm curious to see how USC responds against the nation's leading passer. So that's kind of like a, am I allowed to say half-assed on your, on your podcast? <laughs> You're totally allowed to say half-assed. I've said worse okay. than that. We don't work totally blue here. Forget it. No, Auerbach is just like, she's cussing up a storm on here. <laughs> that's not true. Mouth uh, like a sailor. Yeah. No, so that's, it's, it's, it's kind of a half-assed response just because the slate of games this weekend isn't fantastic. 
Well, I, I feel like we often give the like everybody else. I'm I'm an East Coast guy, so I feel like there's there's East Coast bias and maybe some SEC bias and certainly some East of the Mississippi bias mm-hmm. in this podcast, like a lot of college football. So the fact that we've had a podcast that, that focuses a lot on the Pac-12 is probably a good thing. I will make my friends in Pac-12 country very happy about that, that we put a lot of a spotlight on their league when I think it is. Again, I think it really is an important week for the league to have a good show in Oregon and Stanford and sort of show that there are some viable teams out there. And it's not just, hey, if Washington doesn't run the table, they're not going to get a team in the play- in the playoff. To go back to AT&T, you know, the Pac-12 could be good or they could be really bad. <laughs> and I think this weekend, one quarter into Stanford, Oregon, uh, we should have a, a much better idea about the personality of this conference and whether or not they are good. I think one one quarter will be enough of a taste of Stanford, Oregon, that we'll have a good idea. Chantel Jennings from The Athletic, thank you so much. Read her piece on the fake national championship game between Nebraska and Michigan in 1997 uh, at The Athletic. Thanks so much for joining me, and hopefully we will cross paths, whether it's on the West Coast or somewhere back east or maybe in the Midwest somewhere real soon. Thanks, Ralph. And now three and out. First down. Before the season, I thought Mississippi State could emerge as the second best team in the SEC West and maybe third best in the conference behind Alabama and Georgia. The more I see, the more I think I could be right, despite the good starts from LSU and an encouraging performance by Texas A&M against Clemson. The Bulldogs get a nice test this weekend at Kentucky. The Wildcats are pretty tough on both lines and run the ball well with Benny Snell, the talented tailback. They are built a fair amount like the Bulldogs. Kentucky might be the second-best team in the SEC East, in fact. If Mississippi State can dominate the way it has its first three games against Kentucky, it would be pretty telling. Just getting another road win is significant for the Bulldogs. Second down. It is tempting to dismiss Iowa's excellent defensive stats as a result of meh competition. The Hawkeyes are second in the nation in yards per play and second in the nation in points allowed. Let me tell you, Iowa's defensive line is no joke. It's not quite Clemson or Auburn when it comes to future early round draft picks, but across the board, Iowa's got NFL players, especially A.J. Epineza, the former five-star recruit. Wisconsin's loss takes some shine off the game this week in Iowa City, but the Hawkeyes' D-line against the Badgers' O-line is one of the tasty matchups in the Big Ten and really in all of college football this weekend. Third down. Last Friday, on an otherwise slow news night in sports, Fox College football analyst Joel Klatt slammed the AP poll in a video posted to social media saying it was filled with confirmation bias and incompetence and therefore it was bad for college football. Klatt was an AP voter a few years ago. I personally like his work. And while I don't know him that well, he's always seemed like a decent guy. So I understand, and I've got no problem with Joel going off on the AP poll. I invited him on the show this week, but he was busy, a little too busy. So tentatively, we're set for him to come on the show next week. And we'll talk to Joel about the points he made, some of which were fair, and why I think he's off base. And we'll also talk about the rest of college football because he knows a lot about college football. So we're not just going to scream at each other about the AP poll. We'll talk about more than that, but we'll definitely talk about the points he made. We'll get more deeply into Joel's thoughts and my response next week. 
But I'll say here what I tweeted last week, sort of in response to the debate that was popping up all over Twitter about whether Joel was right or wrong. Voting in the AP poll is purely subjective. Most criticism of the poll can be summed up thusly. I don't agree with the rankings, so therefore, the whole enterprise is bad. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Podcast One and on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.